0: Previously, on the Sports Refuge Podcast.
1: That guy should be gone. You can't monitor a college team to the point where you got someone dying on the field. You gotta go.
0: Set your coordinates and lock in your location because it's time for the Sports Refuge Podcast. This is the meeting place to talk sports, pop culture, and everything in between. And now, here's your host, Earl Holland. Welcome back to the Sports Refuge Podcast. I'm Earl Holland. This is a weekly show where I talk with guests about their connection to sports. My guest this week, Jeff Taviano, is among one of the biggest Philadelphia sports fans I know. Living among the most rabid fan bases in Philly, Jeff is now making the transition to living among a fan base that is equally as passionate, Boston sports fans. In this episode, Jeff and I discuss the reputation given to Philadelphia sports fans, which city has the most historical impact, Boston or Philadelphia, and who is Philadelphia's favorite team. We'll also talk about Taviano's past playing baseball, his fascination with Las Vegas, and how it compares to Miami, his interest in sports betting, and his love of fishing. And now, here's my interview with Jeff Taviano. This week's guest is someone that probably knows more about betting than I ever will know, in addition to fishing as well. He is Jeff Taviano, probably one of the biggest Philadelphia sports fans that I can say I've known since I've moved to the Northern Delaware area more than... Three years ago, Jeff is now living in Boston, Massachusetts. And Jeff, what is the biggest difference between Philadelphia sports fans and Boston sports fans?
1: I would say the biggest difference is just in Boston, they expect everyone to win. I don't want to say the word is spoiled, but I kind of also do want to use the word spoiled because it describes them leading up to game day. But then once it's game day, it's fire comes out. But, uh, In Boston, they expect to win. And, you know, in Philly, it's always that fight to win. But besides the Eagles last year, there's always been that underdog mentality. Our franchise history programs haven't been that great. I mean, you know, out of the over 100 years that Philly has been in existence, we have two World Series to show for, you know, for the Eagles. We just got our first Super Bowl. You know, the Flyers haven't had a Stanley Cup since, you know, they were brought into the league and they won the first two in their first two years and then that was it, gone. And, uh, you know, Sixers, it's been since the 80s, since we've had an NBA championship. So we always kind of have that will to win, that fire to us. And in Boston, you know, it's expectations. They expect you to win. It doesn't matter if you're Tom Brady's team or if you're Jason Tatum and you're struggling right now. They expect you to play well and to win.
0: What would you say is Philadelphia's most popular team? Uh,
1: I mean, the most popular. I mean, my personal favorite would be the Phillies. But, I mean, right now, you got to say the 76 is where everybody's putting their pride on. Again, the Flyers, though, they have been playing better lately. Overall, though, on any given year, I would probably say the Eagles are the pride and joy of Philadelphia.
0: Do you feel that Philadelphia fans get maybe a bad reputation just because of all the stories that have come out? There are probably of fans in other cities that have probably done just as worse
1: oh yeah philly definitely gets a bad rap. now i mean i'll be the first to tell you every single city has bad apples in their fan base you know philly is famous because they threw snowballs at santa you know and it's not like it's the real santa and you know they threw uh batteries at jd drew i mean you have bad apples and you know they go far in between but i mean hey You know, the Philly fans, I remember when we won the Super Bowl, everybody was talking about that one fan who ate crap, you know, ate horse dung. Well, guess what happened here in Boston when the Red Sox won the World Series? Some fan ate crap, (laughs) horse dung right off the street. You know, what happened here in Boston right after that Philly, you know? So, like, you have those bad apples everywhere. But, I mean, Philly gets its reputation. And, I mean, rightfully so, I've seen some bad stuff happen in Philly. I've seen fights at almost every single Flyers playoff game I've ever attended. And probably the majority of Flyers regular season games, especially when I sat up in the 200 level, I've probably seen a lot of fights up there. You know, in Philly, I've seen stuff happen to, to cars and stuff like that. But I've seen that here, too, in Boston. I mean, hell, my first game here in Boston was Red Sox-Orioles. And I was discussing Manny Machado with one of my friends. And, uh, you know, we were talking about possible landing spots, you know. And I was talking about it's going to be either Philly or L.A. And I had this Red Sox fan turn around and tell me to shut the hell up and that he's going to New York and, you know, all this stuff, I'm just like, what a bad fan, you know? We're not even talking to you, and here you are chiming about Manny Machado going to your ex rival, and you couldn't be more wrong right now, you know? So, I feel like it's the most notable bad rap for it, but I mean, I live right down the street from Fenway Park. I'm right between BC and BU right now, and I mean, I see it every single time I go out, you know, you got those bad fans. So, you know, what are you gonna do? You have bad apples. Most of the time, it's not that the person itself is bad. It's just, I mean, when it comes to these big sporting events, Everybody's drunk. People drink a lot. I mean, outside Fenway Park, it's literally all bars. Every single building outside of Fenway Park is pretty much a bar. I mean, there's even hidden bars, like underground bars there. There's actually a bar you can go to It's under the Green Monster. So, yeah, and you don't need tickets to the game to go to that place. So alcohol plays its part.
0: The only place I can think of that's very similar to that is Wrigleyville in Chicago. When I went there last summer, there were tons of bars. Not only that, they just... Rebuilt the area, a lot of eateries there, but I feel like bars were pretty much every other building around that stadium area. I'm hoping to eventually go to Fenway to see what it's like, but I don't know what to really expect.
1: I really feel my brother and my dad went there and they made a trip. And um, from what they described, I mean, Fenway is a lot like Wrigley besides the fact that they're old stadiums now, when you go to Fenway Park, if you're expecting to be mind-blown about food and the stadium, like the inside, you're over-expecting, like you know, lower your expectations a bit. I mean, it's an old stadium, and when you're inside, it feels like you're in an old stadium. You know, there's nothing spectacular you're going to see inside, but it's not the inside that matters at Fenway. It's when you go outside and you see the view, you really just take in the ballpark. Every single game, all six games I went to, I sat in different spots. I sat on the Green Monster. I sat behind the visiting dog out I sat behind home plate I sat in right field I sat in center field I've been down both foul lines so when you're at Fenway it's like you're at Fenway and for a stadium that only has seats you know 30 some thousand they make quite a bit of noise there it gets pretty loud in there
0: comparing the two cities aside from fan bases and teams which one do you feel has more historical impact when it comes to the history of the country would you say Boston or would you say Philadelphia
1: that's a tough question you know uh I mean, Philadelphia is your original capital of the U.S. I mean, if you don't mind the two years, the capital is in New York City. Then again, Boston's where the revolution started. I live close to the Boston Harbor. It's not too far away. You know, or how they say it, the Boston Hava but more historical, my bias wants me to say Philly, but then again, I mean, Boston, I mean, it's a very historical city. It's an old city and you know it from the second you drive here and you get into the city of Boston, you know how old it is. Roads are outdated other than the big dig, which is the big tunnel system that they have on their roads, but all the roads are narrow, a lot of one lane roads here. There's no real highway system. There's no grid system like you have in many modern cities like Philadelphia. And it's also different, you know, Philadelphia has got that Southern city feel to it. In Boston, you know you're in the North especially right now when it's 20 degrees outside. But uh, yeah, you really you're in North here. If you're going to make me pick a city, though, as far as most historical, you know, I'm going to have to go Philly because where would the United States be without its original capital?
0: Now, you went to the University of Delaware, graduated from there. You initially went in, you were going to play baseball there. What was the transition like going in initially for athletics and then going in and focusing more on academics later on?
1: Uh, it was a big difference, um, you know, especially me. So I started school a year early, so I was 17. You know, I didn't have that, what am I going to be when you grow up mentality, you know. I still was young and immature, so really didn't have, like, you know, that education-first mentality. But everything happens for a reason, and that whole switch from athletics to academics really put me in the field that I'm in now. Pretty much, I did the criminal justice major. My older brother did that. He got a degree from UD in criminal justice and got a job right out of college. So, you know, he recommended that to me, and, you know, I did that. But by my sophomore year, when I was finishing up the core of my criminal justice courses, I took a class called Communications 300, and we had a guest speaker. And she was with the Student Television Network and talked about, you know, sports reporting, entertainment and all that stuff. And it just clicked to me, you know, she gave me her email and I emailed her and she said, hey, I can put you on the sports team. And I figured, well, if I can't play sports and, you know, I had that urge, i drive the want to wanna play. Like even when I knew I could no longer compete at the collegiate level, I had a torn rotator cuff. I had no more gas left in me. I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't stop wanting to talk about it. It was like an urge. So I took the initiative to go ahead and join the Student Television Network. And I was on two TV shows, Hen Sports Night, where I worked alongside many of the former Delaware athletes, including football players that were on the team when I was there, baseball players, hockey players, all that. And then I also worked on 49 News, where I cover our sports and was our main sports reporter. So I covered all UD games. I even covered some professional games. But I didn't stop there. I also joined UD Review. And covered the baseball beat for a while and followed the team around. And then I also worked for, I was a contributing editor for the New Jersey Newsroom. And that's where I kind of dove into more stories into sports. I did a story on gas prices when they were rising, threading my wings when it comes to the world of media and seeing what else I could take on. And, you know, it was during that time when I realized that I also liked reporting on music and came to the news journal. I covered Firefly multiple times, living there at Firefly in the campground, in the hot sun and the pouring rain. <laughs> But yeah, that transition, it was tough, but I found my medium when it came to extracurriculars because it was that addition of the sports networks that just helped me really buckle down. It gave me like more than just going to class and coming back and, you know, hanging out with friends. It gave me more. It like, felt like a job that I had while I was in college besides when I was doing construction. It felt like I actually had a career I was building towards, and it panned out, you know, Right after school, you know, I started at UD and UD Media Relations and immediately got picked up by the News Journal in um, December of that same year I graduated. And I was there for over three and a half years before I left to come up here to Boston.
0: Going back to your injury, did you ever think about trying to do that again? Did you ever try to have surgery and see if that would work? I know shoulder injuries are ones that are more iffy as opposed to an elbow injury.
1: Uh, I mean, I thought about it and I talked to someone. My doctor recommended is he told me, you know, hey, if you get the surgery, you're going to have a six month painful recovery, but you'll be able to come back and play. However, When you get that surgery, you have even more of a chance now that you'll tear it again. If you put it right back through that rigorous wear and tear that you did before, that made it tear in the first place. You said basically when you get that surgery, your shoulder becomes more fragile. So yes, it heals. Or if you give it that same workload and you start firing fastballs as hard as you can, you're very likely to tear it again. And he gave me another alternative, and that was to do physical therapy and rehab it, which I did. I did that a lot. And while I was doing that, I started playing semi-pro, playing for Damiani Tal, and you know, I did all right. We were playing against mostly college kids, you know. And I felt like I had that transition back and that my arm was fully healthy. My senior year I actually did walk back on to UD. To the baseball team there was the opening tryouts over 100 kids were there and i lasted the whole round the whole month i was there but during that i stopped my rehab i couldn't do both because the schedules conflicted so i had to give up the rehab in order to try to give it my all for practice and uh it came down to the final cuts There was eight of us left and i was still in a bullpen session against live hitters and uh first curveball i knew it was gonna be a bad day (laughs) i knew it was gonna be a bad day and I just couldn't hit my curveball spots for nothing and that was my bread and butter that was my go to it wasn't my two seamer which was one of my better pitches but it was my curveball I knew how to put it where I wanted it when I wanted I could have a 30 count and throw three straight curveballs exactly where I wanted them to be and a lot of pitchers won't do that that's what kind of made me different but in that bullpen I just didn't have it couldn't do it and I I had to rely on my fastball. And you got D1 hitters seeing fastball, 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 fastball. They're going to start hitting it. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, I just didn't have a good last practice. And they only took two from that tryout. So I made it down to the final eight. But I just gave it my all. And a lot of players came out to support me. A lot of my friends came out to support me on that tryout. So I felt that I let people down. But, I mean, that's just my arm. It just locked up. You know, when I started throwing those curveballs, I just couldn't do it anymore. And that's kind of when I knew it was just my baseball days were over, at least at the collegiate level
0: you were talking about the bullpen session you felt that you didn't have that feel how does it differ warming up in the bullpen as opposed to warming up on the mound in the game situation you hear many pitchers in the majors talk about how especially the ones who maybe be no hitters they felt like i felt horrible on the bullpen and then all of a sudden when you're on the mound it's something completely different what is the biggest difference between warming up in the bullpen and warming up on the mound in the game situation
1: huge huge difference i mean first off when you're a starting pitcher you have all day to think about your performance you're out there thinking and thinking and thinking you know and when you're The bullpen, you always got to mentally prepare to be ready, but it's tough to do that every day because when you're mentally prepared, even when you're called, Hey, Jeff, start throwing pitches, you know, we need you to warm up, and you're like, All right, this is it. And then the pitcher in front of you gets out of the jam, and next thing you know, you're not pitching today. And it's just you get up, you go down, you get up, you go down, and you know, that itself kind of hurts your mentality when it's just like, All right, I keep getting called warm up, and then I'm not being used, and you know, kind of like when it goes to Having your head in the game every single day, it's just like, all right, I'm going to warm up. What am I actually going to get in? And then there's a big difference right when you step on the mound to start warming up. And first off, your mound on the playing field is always different than the mound in the bullpen. So that's something you got to get used to really fast, especially because you have another pitcher that's on that mound. And there's something that we pitchers always do that's kind of like a mound game. You know, It pisses some pitchers off, but it's filling that rift, that little divot right in front of the rubber. Some pitchers, myself, like a hole there. You know, we like to put our heels up on the rubber and kind of be on our tippy toes a little bit. Some pitchers want that flat. They it right back in the second you hop off that mound, and now you got to go carve one back out. Um, and then when you're on that mound, you know, as opposed to being in the bullpen, all the eyes are on you. The other team is watching you. They're looking at what you have. You know, that first hitter, he's already in the batter's box trying to time up your fastball. So, like, the pressure's on. The butterflies are flying in his stomach, as opposed to the bullpen. It's just like, okay, it's just you and the catcher. Maybe it's your pitching coach as well. But it's just you guys. It's people you know, so you're more relaxed. But then once you're on the mound... And everybody's watching you and, you know, the other team sizing you up, you know, they're trying to hit you. It gives you those butterflies and to be a successful pitcher, it's what you have, but it's also big mind game. You know, you're trying to outthink the hitter. You're trying to get the hitter guessing on a pitch that you're not going to throw. It's, it's a big mind game right there. But yeah, it's a big difference when you actually get on the hill in the game as opposed to the bullpen.
0: What do you feel is the biggest misconception when it comes to pitching? What is it that people think, oh, it's so easy to get out there and throw 90 plus miles an hour? Oh, it's
1: not. Not by any shot. I mean, the hardest I ever threw was 88, and that was when I put everything I got into it. And, you know, even in high school, especially in the Flight A Division in baseball, when I was in high school, I mean, William Penn had two kids, Bryson and Overholzer, both go to the major leagues. You know, you got kids that can hit these, you know, 88 miles an hour fastballs, nothing to them, you know? I mean, hell, when we were in practice, we would put the pitching machine 45 feet away and turn it up to its highest speed to simulate, you know, a 90-plus mile an hour fastball. And, uh, I mean, we could hit them, you know? So, that misconception of okay, well, any pitcher can just go out there and throw heat. It's not even just that. You got to be good with that heat. You got to be good with the pitches you throw. And if you can't throw, you know, a dominating fastball, you need to have another weapon. Um, for myself, it was my two-seamer and it was my curveball. I didn't throw anything straight. Didn't throw anything flat. My two-seamers cut a lot. You can't really see my fingers, but I have my index and my middle finger are actually naturally bent. So it kind of gave me more of a a push when I put my middle finger down on the seam for my two-seamer that it really cut. And it cut from the full outside corner all the way back to the inside corner of the plate if I wanted it to. Um, And the same thing with the snap on the curveball. You know, I had to get good with those pitches and not just throwing them and just saying, all right, I'm going to put this in the strike zone. Hopefully they can't hit it. You know, I learned my lesson immediately my uh, junior year when I pitched against St. Mark's, thinking I was, you know, unhittable because my freshman and sophomore year, no one touched me. And I'd go up to play St. Mark's, and they teed off on me. I mean, they hit my curveball. They hit anything I put across the plate. They put up six runs on me in two innings, and it was demoralizing. It was like a mind check, you know. And uh, it was that game that kind of taught me, all right, I need to really learn how to spot my pitches, put them right where I – want to have them because when you miss as you get in tougher and tougher leagues you know when you go from the top high school baseball teams to d1 college baseball you know even american legion and semi-pro like if you can't spot your pitches you're gonna get hit i don't care how hard you can throw or what you can throw you know so that just kind of shows when you go from that to the majors how much harder it would have to be you look when a pitcher throws a fastball down the middle of the plate and it doesn't get rocked the commentators are always saying, hey, that pitcher got away with one. He got lucky right there, and he really did because all those hitters, even the ones that are struggling to hit 200 in the high leagues, they can hit that. They didn't swing the bat there because they were frozen. They were surprised at a pitch like that came right over to cross the plate, but they can hit it, and you do it again, I guarantee you they will hit it. And that was kind of the thing that I had to focus on my game and make sure I'm not just lobbing pitches across the plate because, yeah, there's strikes. Me, I can throw it as hard as I want right down the middle, but if I don't put it on the inside corner, if he's jammed in on the batter's box, or if I don't find his cold spot, he's going to hit whatever I throw. And, I mean, I, I learned that real quick against St. Mark's when they hit my best pitches, just teed off on me as if I was a freshman JV pitcher.
0: Do you feel that baseball's becoming a little too more offensive-oriented as opposed to the focus on pitching And nowadays, I know everyone still knows you have to have good pitching in order to win, but it feels like there's been a huge swing of momentum in the favor of the offense.
1: I feel that a little bit, not too much, because there's a lot of people striking out now. I feel like a lot of people are trying to hit home runs when they shouldn't be, when they should just try to be putting the bat on the ball. There's a couple new rule changes, though, that really help out the offense, one being the Posey rule, never get tired of that. That costs a lot of teams games. This year, it costs affiliates on a game. Hell, you can go to YouTube and watch some crazy YouTube videos about the Posey rule. Just calls that are just like, what? Now that player is being ruled safe? You know, it makes no sense. So I think that definitely helps out team offenses. Insta replay probably helps out team offenses because majority of the time, those players are getting called out in those bang-bang places to plate. So um, I think that helps a bit of offense. But then again, at the same time, you know, there's a lot of dominant pitchers right now. I mean, this year's free agency has so many starting pitchers that are top-class. I wrote an article for Philly Sports Nation a couple of weeks ago just talking about all the available free agents in the pitching market that are out there. There's a lot of good pitchers, so I would kind of say it's balancing itself out. I mean, if you take the Red Sox out of the equation and you look at a lot of teams starting lineups, each of them have, you know, seven or eight guys hitting under 300. I don't think the Phillies ended with a single player batting over 300. That was with the team for the whole year. You know, the exceptions being Wilson Ramos and Roman Quinn. But, I mean, they weren't with the Phillies all year. But as far as rest of the guys that were with them, only any of them were hitting over 300. Even Reese Hoskins was hitting, I think, 240. You know, it just goes to show pitchers are dominant, especially now.
0: What are your thoughts on the opener that Tampa Bay uses? A lot of teams may be starting to go that way as well. Do you think that's a good strategy?
1: Personally, as a pitcher, I think that would kind of mess with my psyche a little bit, just not taking the toe at first. And then, of course, it immediately puts you down one guy in the bullpen. So if you're going extras you're one arm short already, which puts you at a major disadvantage. And unless it was game three of a series, I wouldn't recommend starting a series off like that. Just because immediately you're putting yourself in a hole, especially if that game goes longer than you anticipate to. And in baseball, it doesn't matter if you have your best pitcher out there. If your hitters have a cold night, you're going to be in for a long game. And we've seen that. I mean, we've seen a lot of long games. First World Series game in LA. I mean, would that go 16 innings? Can't anticipate that. So I'm not a big fan of letting the reliever go first. I think you use them when you need to use them. And I'm also not a fan of when you put the pitcher in left field and hoping to bring them back in because I also think as a pitcher, and once you come out of the game, it really messes your arm up to try to jump back in there. I mean, that's why starting pitchers, when they take them out in each inning, they warm up a little bit, you know, and they go from being put in left field and all right, come back in and face this hitter. It's like, all right, well, my arm kind of froze up a little bit. You want me to throw high 80s, low 90s? That's going to be tough when my arm's not loose.
0: Just going back to, you talked about pitching. What would you say is the secret to throwing a really good curveball?
1: So how I learned was hold your hand up on your thumb and your index and your middle finger. Index on one side of the seam, my middle on the other side. Hold it up like an L, kind of like you're giving somebody the loser sign, you know, like the L. And then when you're coming down, you snap it to a gun, you know, kind of like you're pointing your finger like a gun to somebody. I think that's the biggest key is that snap of the wrist. As you're coming down, that gives it the most spin. That gives it the most velocity at the same time. But at the same time, my fingers are a little crooked, my index in my middle. So I kind of had an advantage. When I snapped it, it snapped even harder. I remember when I was 10 and I first started throwing curveballs in Little League. My umpire <laughs> walked up to me after the game was like, those were the nastiest curveballs I've ever seen from a leaguer, you know. And that was kind of like an advantage because my fingers. But again, the L to a gun is the way I've always been taught. Just like you're giving a loser sign to somebody and then you snap it right to a gun right as you're releasing it. Gives it that good spin. Another way to really learn your location on it is uh, before you start really practicing a curveball, kind of hold the ball like an L and then just throw it without snapping it. Um, And just kind of find your placement of where that ball is going to go. It's not going to go where you want it. It's not going to go to the strike zone. It's not going to hit your catcher anywhere in the target. It's most likely, if you're a righty, you're going to go into the right-hander's batter's box. And it's when you do that, you kind of find where your release point is. So then once you get that, for me, it was when I had a righty up and I wanted to paint the inside corner with a fastball, I aimed at his head. I had my eyes locked right on his head because I knew if I threw that pitch without snapping my wrist, that's where it was going to go. And when I snapped it, it would just come back down and in, and it would paint that corner every single time. And I kind of just used that wherever I wanted to put the ball. If I wanted that curveball in the lower outside corner – then I would kind of aim at the top right-hand corner, kind of just like anticipate that break. You just got to find your spot. I found it by throwing the ball, without snapping it, just throwing it and seeing where that goes. And then next pitch, do the same release point except snap it and just watch that ball break.
0: You've lived in Delaware nearly your whole life. I know Delaware especially came to the forefront of sports betting. And to me, sports betting has always been such a confusing thing. I normally, trying to understand the spreads and the overs and unders, it feels like, well, some of those things are a little bit complex for me. I always... If I were going to bet for something, I bet they're going to win. That's all it is. I'm not going to try to go into the extenuating categories and minutiae of betting. But I always thought, to me, trying to understand the betting and the over and under, and that's that was just too complicated for me. How did you get into knowing the odds and things like that?
1: Um, well, first off, one thing you have to really understand it right off the bat is... Gambling is always against you the Vegas odd-makers they make those odds against you So when you think you know it all you really don't the odds are always in their favor So you have to always remember that and when it's those times when you're getting greedy But you have to catch yourself. That's my first lesson right off the bat and then number two Another big lesson I have is you can do everything right you can anticipate everything the way you're anticipating it You can say "Oh, this running back is gonna eat up their defense you know he should, and nine out of ten times he will. But you'll have a game like Purdue Ohio State where Purdue blows them out by 29 points. There's nothing you can do about that. Those happen, and you have to not beat yourself up on it when those happen. Well, when it comes to figuring out odds and spreads, first off, if you want to bet who's going to win without a point spread, you can do that. The money you're going to be putting up versus the money you're going to win is usually not in your favor. Like if you're betting Alabama to straight win against LSU, I think you're putting up probably a thousand dollars just to win a hundred. <laughs> I see even worse odds for Alabama. But then again, if you're picking the underdog, you could be betting a hundred and winning six hundred. You know, if you pick BYU over Wisconsin to win, I think that was over like a plus seven hundred. <laughs> so I think you're winning seven hundred dollars for a one hundred dollar bet, which that's always good. As far as point spreads though, I only bet on games I love. If I don't love it, I don't bet it. If I have some extra money, like play money to throw around, you know, if I don't care that I'm gonna lose it. Which isn't often, but if I don't care that I'm gonna lose it, then yeah, I can take a game that I like. But when it comes to betting, it's games that I love. For example, you have Buffalo and Ohio, and I mean Buffalo's a huge favorite. I mean they're nine and one and dominating the MAC. They've been dominating all their opponents, and Ohio just got blown out by Miami of Ohio, who's one of the worst MAC teams there is, which you can't predict. Odds would tell you, hey, bet Buffalo. Buffalo is gonna win, you know, straight up, but you know, last I checked the score, it was 24-7 Ohio. And it's games like that that I kind of just stay away from. I look at the previous matchups, the last time they've played each other, the last time they've met up. It kind of tells you a lot about the team, especially if it's the same players. That team might not be a good team, but they could match up very well against a team you're wanting to bet for. So that can always be scary. You know, like in the case of Ohio and Buffalo right now, Ohio is killing them. That's one factor. I also look at win streaks. If the team's, you know, won five straight and other teams just lost four of their last five, you kind of want to lean towards the team that's on that hot streak because it's really much easier to play when your head's up and your head's in the game winning versus when you're at home. Another big thing, always do the three-point for the home team. Anytime you see a spread, you kind of got to automatically in your head give the home team three points. So if the away team's plus seven or predicted to win by ten, you kind of have to think, okay, well, without a home field advantage, ABB, you predicted to win by thirteen. Same thing vice versa at home. If they're at home and they're favored by three and a half points, that game is probably going to come down to a half a point. You know, they're getting that three points for a home field advantage. And in some cases, like if you're at University of Washington where you have one of the best home field advantages in football, because you have one of the a lot of stadiums in football, that home field advantage can play a number on a lot of, you know, nineteen and twenty year olds heads as opposed to in the NFL when those kids have played at, you know, one hundred plus thousand seat stadiums in Michigan and Ohio State and LSU and then they come play at the Chargers Stadium at thirty five thousand people, that home field advantage isn't gonna mean much, especially, you know, in those cases where it's mostly late visitor fans anyway. You'll also have to take that as a note. There's really no just like easy way to get it. What I would say if you're gonna bet, find one game, just one game that you're gonna love, that you really love. And if it's on a big day, like let's say you want to spend the whole day betting on sports like college football, Saturdays, or NFL Sundays, I would line up multiple games in a row. So out of the 1 o'clock games, what game do you love? 4 o'clock, what game do you love? And like anticipate you know, picking those games right off the bat. I also advise against parlays. They're usually always bad. I mean, that's why, that's why they pay out so much better. But when you go to a three-team parlay, I mean, you're really hoping for a miracle because even if the games are downright obvious this team should cover, this team should cover, this team should cover, usually one of those teams something frequently happens. I don't care if it's the rain or if the kicker misses three field goals or four field goals off the crossbar, like in the case of Chicago, Miami. Things like that will happen. The more games you bet, the more you're going to see that. So, I mean, when it comes to parlaying, I've only really had luck a couple times, and it's usually only when I do a two-team parlay. uh, When I do three-team parlays, I mean, hell, uh, I was just in Vegas last week, and I did two separate parlays. I did Utah, Alabama in one, and Utah, Georgia in the other. Of course, Alabama and Georgia both covered. Utah did not. So, I mean, there you go. That's that's two losses right there. So that can happen. Fortunately, you know, there was plenty of the games to make that back up on. But uh, you really got to find something you love. The only reason why I even parlayed those is just because, you know, I was in Vegas. Why not? Why not just go ahead and see if I could take a little extra money from the Mirage When it comes to spreads, it's got to be something that you really love. Don't just bet any game because if you do that, you're likely going to lose. And I would also put a side note in there. Avoid the big heavyweight games. Avoid Michigan-Ohio State. Avoid the big games and look for more like North Texas versus Louisiana Tech. You know, those games are the games that usually give you better spreads Better over-unders, a lot of those teams, you look at their defense and you see their defenses are giving up 30 points a game. So you're kind of anticipating a shootout, because, especially in those conferences. Those teams really, when they're giving up 30 points a game, they're going to give up 30 points a game every single night. And it's usually going to hit the over. But yeah, that's pretty much what I got to say about that.
0: When it comes to gambling, have you had a moment where you're going on a hot streak, your better judgment tells you, time to walk away. You don't, and then you instantly regret it. Oh,
1: yeah. When I first started in Vegas this year, I hit my first three games, and, you know, I uh, picked up the Army-Air Force game. I loved it, though. I really actually loved that game, and, I mean, Army had that game in hand. They were up 14 to nothing as, you know, halfway through the fourth quarter, So and they had to cover a 6.5-point spread. They wound up winning 17-14. to Kind of got an unlucky pass interference call that kept, uh, on 4th and 10, that kept the Air Force alive. That kind of cost a bet. But yeah, and you have that. Just like you will if you're up a lot in roulette or something like that and you decide to keep playing when you probably shouldn't walk away because you're not supposed to win that much. And Then next thing you know, you check how much money you have and it's all gone. <laughs> That's what happens. Those odds are against you. They're always against you, no matter how smart you think you are. Those odds are against you. It's really hard to make it out as a professional gambler. So um, you got to know when to walk away. That's why on Sunday, after I had a bad college football Saturday, You know, I did well on the first two games during the NFL. I loved two 1 o'clock games. After I won those, I liked some of the 4 o'clock games. I liked Seattle at home against the Chargers. I did not bet them because I was like, all right, you know, I'm lucky enough to come away with these two wins. And thank God I didn't because guess what? The teams I liked, the Rams, they lost. The Seahawks, they lost. You know, it's like that would have been the goal that I would have walked through had I just kept, all right, I just won for my first two. I can keep going. No, I would have lost. You know, and you got to know when to walk away, and you got to understand and keep that in your head that those odds are against you. So if you keep playing with fire, you're eventually going to get burned.
0: I know you're a big fan of Las Vegas. You have visited there many times. What is it that makes Las Vegas so appealing?
1: Oh, man. What does it make Las Vegas so appealing? I mean, it's for everybody. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're young, old, 21 to 25, married, single, In the clubbing, in the shows, in the hiking, helicopter tours, Grand Canyon, I mean, all that stuff, jet skiing, Lake Mead, you know, you have every single weekend, there's trade shows, there's a monster truck show when I was there. There's so much to do in Vegas that I've been out there three times for a week each of the past three years. And still, I mean, haven't done everything I've wanted to do out there. It's just hard. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of stuff to do out there. But it's not like you see Atlantic City or your typical, you know, casino where it's like, all right, these are all the same. They're casinos. You know, they might have a little bit of flair or their nightclub might be a little different from the other, but they're all the same. In Vegas, it's different. Each casino, each hotel has its own theme. You, know, you walk in a Mirage, it's like you're walking into the Amazon jungle. You know, you go to see this palace, and it's everything you thought it would be. You know, it's like The Hangover. You walk in, it's like everything's you know, you know, beautiful. You go to the Venetian, and it's like you're in Little Italy. You know, or well, at least what you want Italy to be. You know, there's Paris, Vegas. It's just that city's alive. You know. Everything's there. It's kind of just like it really fits the description of Sin City, but yeah, it has a big appeal when it comes to just like there's so much to do. This last past week, I finally got to see Circus Day Last, Oh, absolutely. Amazing. Worth every penny. It was a very intimate show. It was fantastic. It had me wide eyes the whole time. And while I was out there, I got to see Lil John, Wiz Khalifa, and Steve Aoki as well. So I got to see a few concerts. I even got to go into Shark tanks and play with the sharks. You know, I mean, not just little sharks, like 12, 13 footers. You know, big sharks. They put a chained hand on you when you get to touch them because if they bite you, they can take your fingers off. Got to visit the Titanic Memorial at the Luxor. There's actual pieces of the Titanic. You know, big parts they brought up from the ocean that are in that museum that you get to touch and like understand what it's like. You got to actually see what the high class suites were like on the Titanic compared to today. Obviously, it's nothing but compared to what the third class was living in. It was a big difference, you know? But yeah, we got to see a lot of cool stuff when we were out there. Got to do the roller coasters off the stratosphere for the first time, which is you get up there 113 stories up. It's a view. It's a view, and when you get on the roller coasters, that throw you off, that 113-foot, it's scary. So there's just a lot of traction there. And then, of course, obviously the Sunday mornings. The best part about sports there is the games are early. So, yeah, you have to wake up early. You want to catch the first NFL game start at 10 a.m., but the best part is your Sunday night football, your Monday night football, and your Thursday night football start at 5 o'clock. So when the games are over, you still have the whole rest of your night ahead of you. It's 8 o'clock, you know? It's not like you're getting ready for bed.
0: How does Las Vegas compare to maybe a place like Miami? Um,
1: I mean, I've been to both. Only for starters, as much as you think Vegas would be more expensive, Miami is definitely more expensive than Vegas. Everything in Miami is a lot more expensive than Vegas. Miami's big. It's a party city, but it's also, you know, a beach city, a relaxed city. There's no gambling. There's, you know, you lose a lot of those attractions. It's a big club city famous for its fancy dinners, which also Vegas has. I mean I had Gordon Ramsay Burger when I was out there last time and had my first sushi burrito. But when you go to Miami, everything's gotta be top class. The seafood out of is great, but Miami's a big party city. The clubs don't ever close. You know, even in Vegas they close. Five AM the lights come on. Everybody goes home. You know, in Miami you have club space and heart and eleven that just they're twenty four hours. You can leave club space at 6 a.m. and go into Hart Nightclub or 11 at 7 a.m. and be there all day. Don't ever close. If you're a partier, the city of Miami is for you. If you want to just have a wild time and do a bunch of different stuff, Vegas would be the way to
0: go. I know we were talking a little earlier before we started. One of the things we were going to go into comparison is... You seem to be an expert when it comes to picking games, college football games, not even just points spreads, but winners as well. What goes into your process when it comes to picking a winner?
1: Um, Well, first off, you got to throw biases out the window. A lot of people do that. A lot of people, they immediately expect, all right, Penn State versus App State. That's a blowout, right? Cross that off your books, you know? And what has happened each time Penn State plays App State? Well, the first time App State won. And this year, Abstate took them to overtime. Penn State was lucky to escape that one. So, yeah, throw all biases out the head. You got to actually like, treat them what you're seeing. Um, another big thing is looking at the depth charts. You got to see, I mean, it's a big difference when you have an all-senior class taking the field. My first ever column for the News Journal was my sports predictions. And uh, I actually picked in my very first column, Temple, to upset Penn State for the first time since, what, 1942 or 43? And I mean, everybody called me crazy for that. I mean, even Jason Levine, um, our former sports editor, he looked at me after he saw that I made that pick and was like, are you sure you want me to run this? Like, are you sure you want your name next to this prediction? Because this is this is a kind of a crazy prediction. And, you know, when I looked at it, okay, I saw Temple's defense, all seniors. Their offense was all seniors. And I look at Penn State being led by a sophomore, Christian Hackenberg, you know, with a lot of sophomores and juniors taking the field. I was like, I'm going to side with these seniors, these big seniors. I looked at their height and weight. If this is a low-scoring game, this is going to be all-day Temple. And, of course, it was. That's exactly what happened. So that's a big thing you don't see in the NFL. That's why the NFL is a bit tougher. Everybody is about on the same level. When it comes to colleges, there's a big difference between a 17, 18 year old taking the field versus you know a 21, 22 year old or you know a fifth year senior taking the field and lining up against a freshman lineman. Who do you think's gonna win that battle? I don't even care if the freshman's bigger than the senior. That senior's got four more years of experience. You know he knows what it's like to play D1 football. He knows what it's like to be out there in front of 70,000 fans. This kid fresh out of high school does not. So it's a Big, big difference there. You got to do a lot of research. You got to throw the biases out. You got to look at the history of the teams. The G5 versus the P5, yeah, those conferences aren't nearly as deep. But there's still usually at least one or two good teams that come out of these G5 conferences that can compete with any P5. I mean, last year we saw Troy beat LSU on the homecoming. You know, in the Mountain West right now, you got Boise State and Utah in the top 25. And you got the American, you got Cincy and UCF in the top 25. Those teams can compete with anybody. All those teams, except Boise State and Utah State, are undefeated against the P5. Utah State, they should have beat Michigan State. They gave up a game-winning touchdown with two minutes left. Boise State kind of got rocked by Oklahoma State. But uh, it just goes to show you that they can compete with them. They can step on the same field and give them a game. So you got to throw out those biases that I see a lot all over college football. I kind of believe the selection committee shares those biases. But you got to throw those out when it comes to head-to-head
0: competition. Jumping from college football to college basketball, did you ever think that a 16 pull-off, an upset of a number one, and did you think UMBC had a chance against Virginia?
1: I picked UMBC. I have people pull up my Twitter or my Facebook and there you go, just find it. You'll see it. I wrote it up every year when I do my picks. I break down each game, including the 16-1 seeds. And for the first time ever, I actually saw stats I liked from UMBC. The big stat that I liked from them was their offense. They scored a lot of points per game. And, yeah, granted, it wasn't against ACC competition. They were still scoring a lot of points. And I was looking at Virginia, and I'm like, hey, they don't score much. They have a great defense, but God forbid they get in the shootout. And, you know, in basketball, you get a hot shooter, you got a hot shooter. You're just you're draining shots. If that happens, if someone gets hot, this Virginia team, they're not going to go keep pace with that. And that's exactly what happened. UMBC was hitting their shots. They started hitting them despite you know outstanding defense from Virginia. UMBC was hitting their shots, and Virginia didn't have an answer because they were averaging, I think, 49, 50 points per game, I think Virginia was averaging. That's not going to get done for you in the NCAA tournament. I don't care how good your defense is. You're going to face a hot-shooting team. It's going to happen, especially through the gauntlet of a 69-team playoff. You're going to face a hot-shooting team at some point or another. And if you can't shoot with them, You're not going to win. I mean, I'm surprised Virginia got as far as they did with that defense. But I was kind of expecting, you know, all right, UMBC's got a hot offense. I think if it's going to happen, it's going to be this team.
0: And then the second round, UMBC almost pulled off another upset. They just sort of, I don't know, the shots weren't falling. I think some calls went against them that are a little questionable. But I feel like UMBC maybe could have pulled off a second upset, being that first 16 team to pull off two wins in in a tournament.
1: I was actually shocked they played as well as they did in the second game. I thought they were going to have a major hangover, as most teams do. Hell, I remember the MEAC showdown. Who was it, Norfolk State? Or uh, was it Norfolk State I that won as a 15 seed? Yeah. I they won as a 15 seed and beat Missouri. And, you know, that shocked a lot of people. But then what you have right after? You have that hangover, and that's tough. That's tough to fight. I mean, you get, you get all up for that game, and you give it your all, and then when it's over, it's hard to get that right back up. In the NCAA tournament, you have to do that for every game, which is why it's so amazing when you see teams like Loyola Chicago or George Mason or, you know, any of these underdogs make it all into the final four. It's just like, wow, they did get it all the way up this whole time. the Gulf Coast, you know, when they put off those big upsets, you know, it's surprising. And I think that's the hardest part is, you know, those teams like Duke, UNC, you know, they're used to playing and getting back up for next game because they play a tough ACC schedule where they're facing big schools and good schools each week, as opposed to maybe Lehigh, who's playing, you know, in the Patriot. They're not playing tough teams each week. You know, they have a couple good games on their schedule, but that's it. You know, and I remember when Lehigh upset Duke as a 15-2 seed. You know, it's like, all right, they got all up for that, but they just don't have it to keep going. They don't have it to put up another one because now they got to play another Duke-like opponent, which is, I mean, it's beyond tough. And when it comes to college football, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, in college football, that's exactly why you can't have a 16-team playoff. Because even if a low seed upsets, let's say, an Alabama or an LSU, it's like they have to go back out the next week and do it again. You know, and that's the hard part. But at that same time and by that same argument, you have a few schools that do it. You have a George Mason in there. You have BYU. You have Gonzaga. You know, hell, I mean, even Villanova is not considered a Power 5 team. You know, they're in the Big East. So it's like – you have these teams that can put that fight up and that can do it. You know, there's not many, it doesn't happen often, but it happens, you know?
0: What is your your ideal playoff field for college football? How many teams should be in the tournament and what is too much?
1: I think 16 is perfect. You have to keep in mind, a lot of people don't realize there's 130 teams in, in FPS football, 130. So right now having four teams be your deciding factor, you're leaving out undefeated teams in the playoff and no sport in the world Even at other levels of college football, do you have teams that go undefeated unless they're on a postseason ban, get left out of the postseason? And you see with the committee rankings, they haven't ranked any G5 team above in the top 10 at all in in the history of their rankings started. So an 18 playoff, which a lot of people are for, that isn't going to get it done too because you're still going to leave out undefeated teams. I think 16 is perfect. I think you have your 10 conference champions, and then when it comes to heavyweight conferences like the SEC and Big Ten, you, know, you have your six at-large spots that would go to the top teams that were non-champions. And to make that work, a lot of people say that's too many games, but I think right off the bat, you can throw out conference championship games to make that happen. Most conference championship games are fairly new. Most of them haven't been around since 2010. That's when they started coming in as the Big Ten expanded, the Pac-12 expanded. Big 12 just brought one in after the TCU-Baylor snub. They're fairly new, and a lot of deciding the factors, they're rematches. Every Big 12 title game right now is a rematch. And if you get Alabama-Georgia this year, and let's say Alabama wins out, Alabama's undefeated in their conference, and they whooped LSU, and you got Georgia. They went into Death Valley, and they died. So you would give that auto bid to Alabama. You really don't need those conference championships. They're mostly money games. And in the case of a tie, if there were two teams that were actually tied for the conference lead in a P5 conference, in most cases, more than not, both teams are going to get in. One's going to get in that large bid. One's going to get the auto bid. There's a lot of tiebreakers. The FCS does it perfectly with the tiebreaker situation. I think 16 is perfect. Because you'd never know. UCF, all right, yeah, they play a a terrible schedule. We all know that. Their strength of schedule is, what, 104 or something like that? But think about it this way. If you took Alabama's roster that they have right now and you put them on UCF schedule and Alabama starts blowing teams away just like you expect them to be, would you think any less of Tua, their Heisman front-runner candidate? Would you say this Alabama team is less talented You know, just because of the teams that they play on is good. It's a big difference. These kids don't make these schedules. In fact, for UCF, they made their schedule years in advance. The UNC game that got canceled because of a hurricane, that game was scheduled months after UNC reached the ACC title game against Clemson. That was literally months after they made that schedule. And then Pitt, right now, they're in first place in the ACC Coastal. So that's a tough game. Texas, who just bailed on them for Alabama, Texas was supposed to play UCF kept postponing it, and then just bailed on them to play Alabama. So for UCF players, what can you do to strengthen your schedule? You know, the most you can can ask for other conferences to take you in, but we've seen what the Big 12 did. You know, they said, all right, we're thinking about expanding, and who were the first teams to try to sign up? They were all G5 members, BYU, Houston, Cincinnati, Boise State. It's not like these schools are deliberately not trying to schedule tough. They are. But they are obligated to play their conference schedules and they can't afford to go, you know, not most schools can't afford to go non conference, you know, like Notre Dame can. They can't afford it. They'll lose out too much money and they won't be able to fund their sports. So they kind of rely on those conferences and that means they're obligated to play the teams that they play. But if you have a sixteen team playoff, you know, that's a lot of people say that's too many games, but if you remove the conference championship games, only the top four teams play more games than they play now. And that would just be by one more game. Um, And I'd also like to add that a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, Troy's just going to get blown out by an Alabama, you know, and that might be the case. So uh, it it works out as a virtual bye week for Alabama, but here's the positives of that. The fans get to see a home game, a home playoff game. You know, and if you say, oh, they're not going to show up, they show up when Alabama plays the Citadel, an FCS opponent. They sell out. It doesn't matter who they play. Same thing for all those pre five schools. If they're good, it doesn't matter who they play. And in a playoff game, the fans will come. Let's say you're a fan and you're on a budget. You want to see your team play, and you can't afford to go to the Orange Bowl in Miami you know, or the Rolls Bowl in L.A. to go see your team and fly out halfway across the country, buy a hotel and everything. But let's say they're playing in your backyard. You can afford to get tickets and go watch that game. You know why? Because you don't have to pay for a hotel. You don't have to pay for travel and all that stuff. And it makes it better for the fans. You know, you can have the schools host the first two rounds, You know, the high seed. And that works out. It'll make the schools more money. They don't have to spend as much money to get to where they're playing. And on top of that, for the small schools who might get blown out, it gives them that much-needed exposure, and it'll help their recruiting for the future years. You look at Boise State in the Mountain West. Since they beat Oklahoma in that Fiesta Bowl, look at their recruiting. They're one of the best recruiting teams in the Mountain West. You know, look at UCF right now. they're recruiting some over the best of the American. I mean, you see that. Houston, they recruit very well now. You know, that's a big reason why the Big 12 didn't want Houston is because they were afraid that if Houston comes in, they're going to steal a lot of those Texas recruits from Texas, Oklahoma, you know, Texas Tech. They're going to steal those recruits, and they're going to all go to Houston. You're going to make a superpower team there, and then they're going to be better than you. You know, you're going to invite this team who's going to then become better than you. And that was a big fear. And, I mean, when you get national exposure, it doesn't matter if you're UAB, Troy, Clemson, Georgia. I mean, hell, Georgia, after their first playoff berth, brought in the best fall early signing class in the history of their school this past year after their first playoff berth. Now, some people say, oh, well, Georgia always recruits the top. That was their best one, and that was because they made their first playoff. That's more than a coincidence. That's a correlation right there, and that correlates for all schools. They recruit better when their teams play better. When they get more national recognition – they're going to do more. I mean, hell, in the case of Delaware, they don't need to play P5 teams every year to build a financial sustain their team. A lot of schools, small schools do it because they get big paychecks and, you know, a $500,000 paycheck to go play at Alabama or whatnot. Delaware doesn't need to do that. But you know what Delaware does gain? Exposure, recruitment. You know, when they go down to Virginia Tech or go to Penn State, their games are on the Big Ten Network. People are watching them. Kids are watching them. And say I'm watching that game and, you know, Delaware's playing Rutgers in a couple years. Delaware might actually beat them as bad as Rutgers is. Well, let's say northern New Jersey, I'm a high school recruit, and I'm not getting in. The school that I wanted to go to hasn't sent me an offer, but – here I am watching Delaware on the TV, and they sent me an offer. You know, they look pretty good, or maybe I want to go there. I'm going to go check them out, and that's what happened, and it really does happen. I mean, hell, the Delaware took some Penn State transfers, you know, with the Reader Brothers. It happens. You have that, and no matter what, out of a 16-team playoff, the only real losers are the bowl sponsors of the games, you know, where you have five and seven Florida State reaching a bowl game. Nobody wants to watch that anyway. You know, you're not going to have those anymore. You might not have your good teams in bowl games, but... Nobody wants a bowl game. No kid grows up saying, gee, I hope I play in a bowl game someday. No, they want to be champions. Kids want to play for championships. And under the current format, over 65 schools are eliminated before the first game of the season, which makes no sense. Those 65 teams, they can go undefeated and nothing. They will get a bowl game, a consolation participation trophy for it. You know, that's the best they're going to get, and that's not fair. Every other sport in the world, including other college football divisions, there's a true playoff. And that's a big part. You know, the NCAA doesn't sanction the college football playoff. It's not a true playoff. It's a P5 Invitational. Technically, your Division One NCAA champion is North Dakota State from the FCS because that's what the NCAA sanctions. And the NCAA president is even for expansion of playoffs. I think he said he wanted an 18. We have a lot of coaches now that are for 16, including Harbaugh up in Michigan. You know, Washington State's coaches preached, you know, that they want expansion. Of course, UCF and all that. They want expansion. The movement is growing. And the only schools that you really see that are against expansion are teams that are getting in every year anyway, Alabama, Clemson. They don't want their roads to get tougher to the title. Of course they wouldn't. But guess what? If you have expanded playoff, you're going to have more money. You're going to have more revenue. You're going to have more markets in the playoff. You're going to have teams from all over the country in the playoffs. So you're going to have more fans tuning in because they can relate to the playoff. Just like March Madness, you can have a December Madness.
0: Jumping ahead from college football, a hobby I know that you'd partake in is fishing. How did you get interested in fishing, and what is a normal day out on the water when it goes to fishing? What is that like for you?
1: Well, I got into fishing, that dates back to when I was six, fishing the ponds by Newcastle Airport for Sunnies and Bluegills. What really captured me, I mean, I I loved fishing, I loved growing up and doing it, loved going trout fishing, but what really captured me was my first time going out on the boat in the Delaware River. I think I was seven or eight. And we were going through the port of Wilmington, and we were cruising by those big, huge, you know, cargo ships that come up to delivering all the fruit and stuff from Chile to the Dole plants and everything. And you see the big boats, and it was just being on a small boat going by that was just like magnificent. It gave you kind of like chills in your bones to realize how small the boat you're in versus that, and it just kind of gave you that excitement. But then once you're out there on the water. It's just relaxing, you're at peace, you know, you don't have the need for social media. It's just like, you don't have the need for anybody that's, other than the people that are on the boat with you. And, you know, if you're not catching anything, you're relaxing, you know, it's kind of like what you would get at a spa, you know, or a massage. You're just laying back, you're on the water, relaxing, you know, usually you got beautiful weather if you're on a boat. And if you are catching stuff, that's when it gets really exciting. That's just having your cake and eating it too. I've caught many monster fish, you know, striper, huge catfish. I even caught a seven foot sturgeon once. That was interesting. But you never know what's going to bite your line, so you always have that thrill about it. And when I was 10, that's when I started commercial crabbing. I was crabbing with my cousin six days a week, you know, to start out when crabbing was really good. So I was on the water every day, and it just kind of was something I grew up with. And, you know, when something you grow up with, it's just like if it's a sport you grow up with, you get good at it. I do a lot of bass fishing now up here in Boston and up in New Hampshire. New Hampshire's got some pretty good bass fishing. Not so great saltwater fishing up here, but it's a lot of good freshwater. But I don't know, just that was kind of a daily routine for me. Every single day, especially in the summer, I was out on the boat. Every single day, seven days a week. If I wasn't crabbing, I was fishing. If I wasn't fishing, I was crabbing. Well, I was at least just getting on a boat, you know. I felt at home. I still feel at home when I'm on the water. And you map things out, kind of just like you would map the roads in your neighborhood. You can map waterways. You can map what's under the water. So that way, if you're a captain of that boat, you're not running into a mud flat and running your boat on into a foot of water. Just because it looks deep doesn't mean it's deep. But, you know, it's just something about that when you go out there and you're fighting the fish, it's just like that thrill of it. You know, I don't really keep much of what I catch. The last time I kept striper, I kept two last year, and that was the first time I kept them in a few years just because, I mean, they are good eating fish. But if I do keep it, I'm going to eat it. But I'm more of a, you know, it's just a sport fisher where I mostly release them. I've actually gotten really good at unhooking even the fish that some people say, oh, they swallowed the hook. You know, I'm pretty good at getting them out without harming the fish. So for me, it's just kind of like you're in nature. And, you know, my girlfriend, her dad has a lake house up in New Hampshire. And I mean, it's beautiful. You go out there, all the eagles are flying around. You're in nature. You see the mountains You know, the water is crystal clear. I mean, you can see the bottom no matter where you are in the lake, unless you're in the really deep end, like 50, 60 feet. You know, you can see the bottom, which is just like, I mean, you can drink from it, really. It's considered a reservoir. It's the third cleanest lake up there. Nothing else matters when you're out there fishing. It's like you and what you want, you know, and you're out there fishing. You're out there doing your thing the troubles of the world and the stresses of life stresses of your job all that just goes out the window you're fishing you know you're relaxing you're doing you you know that's what it's like it's kind of like your getaway your retreat your vacation that's not far from home
0: oh yeah i've never experienced fishing and i've always wondered what it's like and and hopefully one time i'll eventually give it a shot and try fishing.
1: I mean, if you want, I mean, I'll give you recommendations. If you just want a peaceful day out on the water, there's nothing like Delaware shorelines, like Cape Henlopen State Park, you know, or even Battery Park in Newcastle, not far away. You can just set up a lawn chair and put a fishing rod out and just sit there and wait and have a relaxing day. And if you want to like really sport fish, you know, like I've done before, Delaware is home to some of the best charter fishing boats on the East coast, in my opinion. The Katie bids one boat when I was doing the fishing report. Didn't matter what the weather was. Didn't matter what other people were catching. They were bringing back boat limits of whatever they were targeting every single day. And that's a good boat that if you really want to have an action-packed fishing experience, that's a good boat to do it on. But if you just want to go out there and just have like a relaxing day, you know, kind of like a day out where you don't have to spend a lot of money, where you can just like, all right, I'm gonna pull up a lawn chair, I'm gonna cast a fishing rod out, I'm just gonna sit back and enjoy nature on a beautiful day. It's like Delaware shoreline is perfect for that,
0: you know. Uh huh. I know, especially this time of year, Thanksgiving, that's always when you see the big food spread. What is the typical family Thanksgiving for you at your family's house?
1: Well, a typical one, I used to have a big family when I was young. A lot of people were much, much older, and since then a lot of people have gone back to Italy, so I don't see them as much. When I was young, I mean, I'd have up to 70 people in my house. <laughs> it, was, it was like the first come, first serve, get your food. But as far as the spread, I mean, you know, you got your turkey, you got your gravy. Sometimes we even have some pasta, some gnocchis. I love prosciutto. We always have prosciutto and cheese spread out, which prosciutto is one of my favorites. Um, we always have that. We always have uh, stuffed shells, whether it's stuffed with ricotta cheese or meat or whatever we want. I mean, we always have that. Never been a big fan of fruits or vegetables. You know that, so I don't really touch the other stuff. But uh, I will note that what I really love to do and. Um, I did it when I was in college, and I'm doing it again this year because I'll be spending Thanksgiving up here in Boston, is my bacon-wrapped turkey. Love it. Put a whole pound on that turkey. I kind of stop it halfway when I'm cooking it and then recover it in tinfoil, but the juice of that bacon, when it soaks into that turkey... gives it a flavor. You just, it's bacon turkey. It's perfect. I mean, the bacon helps it not be too dry, and it's just, you keep that flavor. You got a nice crunch from the bacon, but like nice juice from the turkey, and it's so good. In college, probably the best Thanksgiving meal I ever prepped. I I had some help with it from my roommates and my friends, but I did bacon-wrapped turkey. I had the mashed potatoes with gravy. I had spaghetti and meatballs. just a thought of Italian on it. I had Oreo pie. Oh, that is so good. Oreo pie. My neighbors brought over pumpkin pie, but I didn't touch it. <laughs> we uh, I, I also, I also, since we had 15 people coming over, and I had like chicken in the freezer, I decided to cook that up too, and uh, I think my roommate made the yams, which I didn't want to touch. But uh, we had a lot of meat. we had no leftovers, because I mean, it was good. And that was the first yeah I did the bacon-wrapped turkey. I saw it on Facebook, and was like, I'm making that, and whew, it came out perfect. Bacon wrapped turkey though is my highlight. And apparently, my girlfriend's dad likes to deep fried turkeys, so I'm hoping to have my very first deep fried turkey this year. So I'll make the bacon wrapped turkey; he makes deep fried turkey, and I get to have the best of both worlds.
0: Now I know you talked about you're not that big on vegetables. What what's a big reason that you aren't really big on fruits or vegetables?
1: I don't know, my parents always, I mean it's not my parents' fault, they always tried to force feed me fruits and vegetables, you know, and sometimes I'd slide them to the dog, you know, and sometimes I would like, yeah, I'm going to eat them and the second they walk out of the kitchen I toss them in the trash and put my plate over top of it so that way you wouldn't even know. Uh, but. I mean, maybe it's because I mean, when I grew up, I grew up in Newport, Delaware, which, I mean, there was a McDonald's walking distance, there's a KFC Taco Bell walking distance, there's even a Wendy's there at some point uh, for a short period of time where it was walking distance and I also had ShopRite where I could go get food, you had, you had Gallery Pizza, Dom's Pizza, <laughs> you had all these places where I could just like, walk and go get food. like, And since I started my first full-time job as a commercial crabber when I was 10, I had money. You know, so I can go to McDonald's and get food. I don't like, if my parents are making a salad, I don't have to eat that. I can just leave and go get McDonald's. And they wouldn't know. They wouldn't know I went to McDonald's, you know. But I went and got McDonald's and I ate. And when they were serving dinner and there was fruits and vegetables, I would say, I'm not hungry. You know, they wouldn't try. They were like, eat your fruits and vegetables. You know, you're going to be, you're, you're going to get sick. You know, you're not going to be healthy. And, well, I mean, here I am. But on that same note, I took Nutrition 200 in, at University of Delaware. And you know, I used to drink a lot of milk, a gallon of milk a day. And I mean, I had a very unhealthy diet in college. And so when we had a dietary analysis, um, I gave it back to my teacher. And she overlooked it and was like, there's no way. Like, you definitely forged this or fake this. There's no way this is what you eat and drink every day. There's, there's no fruits, there's no vegetables. And I had my doctor sign off on it. And I even found in the textbook, and I pointed out to her where there was a note and said, there are some... Who can eat the way I eat and be perfectly healthy? And my doctor even signed off on it, and she had no choice but to give me an egg because I, I, mean, I did everything I was told to do. Is just what I eat. I even saw on my social media on my um, Facebook page the other day one of my time hops where it said day six in a row of Little Caesars pizza. I ate six days of uh, little Caesar's pizza, you know, and I didn't gain a pound. I was actually in great shape in college, you know, so it was like, I, I mean, granted, I was going to the gym every day too in college, but it's just like, I had the metabolism for it so I could do it and still be healthy. And I was like, all right, well, I'll eat what tastes good instead of what's healthy for me, what I don't like to eat.
0: What about corn? you like corn? or?
1: Oh, oh I love corn. Dust it on the cob, put some butter on it, some Old Bay, eat it with crabs. Oh yeah, I'll tear corn up. Corn's an exception.
0: Yeah, I was just talking with someone. I talked about, really, corn, out of all the vegetables, It's like the most useless vegetable. It doesn't really have any <laughs> nutritional value. Yeah, no.
1: that's probably why I like it so much. You, you put some butter and Old Bay on it and some salt? Oh, that's, I mean, yeah, you're from Maryland. Do you put Old Bay on your corn?
0: I don't, only if I'm doing like a crab boil, and I made a couple of crab boils. That's the only thing. Yeah, do it with, with, this, do it French with French
1: the crabs. Do it with the crabs. Oh, yeah. Old Bay on fries, too. Chickies and Pete's is known for that, too. Somehow it's a Philly thing. But, yeah, I love that, too.
0: Well, Jeff, I do appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to do this. What are some ways people can interact with you and see some of your work?
1: Um, So if you can follow me on Twitter, it's uh simple as just my name, at Jeffrey Taviano. My last name is spelled T as in Thomas, A, V as in Victor, I a M as in Nancy, O. You can also add me on Facebook. I also, I'm writing for two blogs that are related, uh, Philadelphia Sports Nation. That right there is where I wrote, write for uh, the Philadelphia Phillies, Flyers. Um, Every now and then I cover the Eagles on there and Sixers. I also write on local Philly colleges, Temple, Drexel, Penn, the rivals of Delaware, I know. But um, I also write for Wagon Enterprises. That's where a lot of my national articles go, like the college football playoff talk and my college football rankings and stuff like that. But yeah, I post it all on Twitter. So everything that I write, even if you don't follow those blogs, which I de- definitely recommend if you're a Philly fan to follow the Philadelphia Sports Nation. A lot of us writers, especially a lot of the writers on Philadelphia Sports Nation, they have credentials. They're there. They're in the media. They're in the media tents. They're in the media rooms during those interviews. You know, just like any other media outlet, we compete with them, and we do it because we want to, not because we're getting paid to. So you know, you're actually going to be reading some pretty good stuff. So I recommend following that.
0: Well, Jeff, I do appreciate it. And I look forward to having you on around Super Bowl time, talk to you a little more about prop bets and sometimes the ridiculous thing that you see during the Super Bowl, and as well as to get your pick for the big game. So I look forward to talking to you in a couple of months. Sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. And that concludes my interview with Jeff Taviano. I'll be back next week with a new guest talking about their connection to sports. To listen to past interviews, go to thesportsrefuge.com or you can find the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, CastBox, Blueberry, Acast, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, and now TuneIn. And if you like what we're doing, don't forget to rate the show and leave a review. If we pick your review, we'll give you a shout out in a future episode of the podcast. And don't forget to check out my recent crossover episode with the Pat and Benny Show on their channel on SoundCloud. Until next time, this is Earl Holland saying thanks for listening and have a good one. You've been listening to the Sports Refuge podcast. Tune in next time for more interviews on sports, pop culture, and everything in between. For more information on the show, go to the Sports Refuge website at www.thesportsrefuge.com. Follow us on Twitter at The sports Refuge, on Instagram at Sports Refuge Sports Blog, and on Facebook at The Sports Refuge Sports Blog.